We had some audio issues during the recording of today's sermon, and we apologize for that. But we believe we have that resolved now for next week. Here's Pastor Dave's sermon, That You May Believe and Have Life. Well, I want to give a brief introduction to the introduction. And so I want to say a word about uh, how starting a new book, uh, kind of from my perspective as the preacher, and also just an even briefer word about your perspective as a listener, as a hearer. Uh, In grad school, before you can write your final thesis or dissertation, every degree is a little different, but many, many end with a thesis or a dissertation. You have to turn in a prospectus and have it approved. A a prospectus typically includes your paper's rationale, a brief survey of the relevant scholarship, a basic game plan for your paper, and a remarkably comprehensive bibliography. While a thesis or dissertation can be hundreds of pages long, generally a prospectus is much shorter, maybe 10 pages-ish, depending upon the length of your bibliography. So when it came time for me to do that, coursework was done. For the uh, what, what really caught me off guard was the amount of work it takes to write such relatively uh, such relatively a few number of pages. For the most part, you have to gather all the books you'll use. You have to do all the reading you'll do. You have to form all of the arguments you'll make. You have to determine the structure of your paper. And you even have to have a a pretty uh, tight conclusion before you can put it in this 10-page prospectus to give to the committee to allow you to be able to start writing. In fact, the only thing really missing is the actual writing. So for someone like me who wasn't expecting that, that, that's a pretty overwhelming starting point. And for the the first time I ever preached through a, a whole book of the Bible, as a pastor here, the same thing happened. In order to be able to preach any of the pieces of John's gospel, for instance, well, I got to work really hard to get my head around the whole of John's gospel. And even though Genesis is longer in length, John's gospel is different. This was definitely the hardest uh, to get ready for of any. So what am I doing with that beyond just that from my perspective? Uh, to really shift metaphors in a in a strange way. Uh, what I was doing then uh, is sitting in my office and creating a pair of polarized glasses for you all. All right, so I know this is a little jarring, this shift in metaphors. But so all this this reading and getting ready to preach John is, think of it as me being in a lab to create a pair of polarized sunglasses for you. Uh, for those of you who are not uh, river fishermen, I don't think it works quite the same. It cuts the glare down if you're a boat fisherman, but it's different if you're a river fisherman. Okay, so what do I mean by that? If you go and you're going you're gonna to fish on a river, you're standing in the water, and you look at the water without glasses or even normal sunglasses, you just see usually the surface of the water. You can't see in it. Usually, but if you put on a pair of polarized sunglasses, the 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 fish don't just swim in there. They they don't just all of a sudden swim up to where you are. It's that you're able to see them now in a way that I don't fully understand. Some some of 
Some of you probably do know what's really happening. But all I know is when you put the glasses on, you can see what's there the way you're meant to. That's what my prospectus work was doing, was creating polarized glasses for you to, to see John. No, nothing new that isn't there. I'm not going to create new things. But this sermon for you all is meant to give you the lenses through which you can see fully the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel of John. All right. <laughs> you with me? That's a goofy, I know, but all right. Uh, so again, uh, it takes a good deal of work to get my head and heart around the whole so I can preach well to you the parts. And now I'm handing you the glasses, which you need to put on so that you can see John. That's what this, this, this sermon itself is, is for you. So having read and listened to John many times in the past couple of weeks, having read hundreds of pages of commentaries and having prayed a great deal for myself and for all of us, I'm eager to share with you the background of John. And in particular, its background, its relationship to the other Gospels, its basic structure, which I think you'll appreciate, its distinctiveness from the other Gospels, and even in a number of ways, the other books of the Bible. And then finally, and most significantly, the aim with which John wrote this. He tells us what it is. We don't have to think too hard about it. But it'll be this will be the lens through which we see the rest of the sermon. So we, the lens through which we hear, which doesn't make sense, but you, get, you, you got it. So I, I want to thank you all, again, before I pray, for loving God's such that you value his word enough, such that you free me up and the other pastors at Grace enough to do this, to to have weeks to prepare for this, for God's glory and all of our good. So with that, let's pray and we'll dive into the background of John. Thank you, God, for this people that love because you first loved us. And thank you that as you grow us in our ability to experience your love, and then from that, our own love for you and for one another, you increase necessarily through those things our hunger for your word, our our, our earnestness, our eagerness, our, our, our longing to know all that you say and all that you are. And, and so our appetite for your word increases. And for those in this room who don't have much of an appetite yet for your word, I pray that maybe John would be the means through which you create that, that they would receive life perhaps or newness of life in Christ. And from that, a longing to know all there is to know about Jesus, all that he is and all that he calls us to and requires of us and is for us and will be forever for us. So may John be all of that and more for us. Please, please let this sermon be a means to the end of seeing John as you intend. There's so much glory. There is so much truth. There is so much light and life and help in this. Let us get all of that. And again, let the sermon be a means to that. For your glory and our good and the good of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a in a really neat way, the title of the book I'll be preaching on for the foreseeable future was given to it at the very beginning of the second century, all the way back, likely very, very shortly after it was written. 
it was given a title. And it is the Gospel according to John. Gospel, with a capital G, is a specific title given to the biblical accounts of Jesus' life at the beginning of the New Testament. One commentator notes that it indicates the book's message, its subject matter, so by being called the gospel, according to John, it indicates its message, its subject matter, and even its purpose, namely to evangelize or announce the good news. Now, John had a more specific purpose still that we'll get to later, but all of that is embedded in the title gospel. The gospel, according to John, therefore, tells the story of Jesus Christ and the good news that it is for the world. In that sense, and this is really important, it is profoundly, it's both profoundly historical and theological. It is meant to be a matter of facts, but in order to help us understand the nature of God and what he calls us to in this life. What a gift that is. Well, in a deeper level still, And I want you to try to let this sink in below the surface a little bit this morning. John's gospel, wherever it describes the nature, teaching, and works of Jesus, which is basically all of it, is in the truest sense an autobiography. Just let that sink in for a second. Since God is the ultimate author of all of Scripture, we're going to talk about the human author in just a minute. But since God is the ultimate author of all of Scripture, every passage that speaks directly about God is autobiography. It's autobiographical. And the Gospels are in many ways the purest version of that. What a remarkable realization that is for us to make. So as we get into John, and as we talk in a minute about who wrote the Gospel of John, remember this. Don't don't forget this. How much more carefully... And eagerly and humbly will we read and listen if we can keep that in mind. That it is ultimately God telling and interpreting the story of God. That's what John's gospel is. What a gift. So with all of that, it's good to get our head around as well the human author of the gospel of John. Given the title, it might seem obvious, right? The gospel according to John, who wrote it? Well, John, but even that needs some explanation, as there were a number of Johns even in the New Testament. I'll save you countless pages of reading. Oh, my goodness. I mean, all right, maybe you want to read it. and I I can give you the stuff to read, but for those of you who don't, which I, I think is right to say I hope is most of you, maybe not, Uh, but I'll save you countless pages of reading and cut straight to the chase both by the internal evidence, that is the stuff we find in the gospel itself, and by every noteworthy account, it seems that the gospel, according to John, was written by the Apostle John, who was also the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters in the book of Revelation. We know that he was the brother of James, not the guy who wrote the book of James, which we just finished, but the son of Zebedee. And the beloved disciple described... In John 21, 24, and 25, this is how John ends his gospel, by saying, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, the beloved disciple, and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
We'll consider the internal evidence for John the Apostle being the author as we work through the gospel. But it's, it's pretty neat to hear at least the first account of John's authorship. It goes back about as far as it could go. One of the church fathers named Irenaeus knew well another earlier church father named Polycarp. Polycarp knew the Apostle John himself and attested to his authorship of the gospel. That's pretty awesome. The John the Apostle wrote this gospel is important because it means that it was written by one of Jesus' closest disciples. If you're familiar at all with the gospels, you know that Peter, James, and John were in the inner circle with Jesus. Even among the twelve, they were even closer to Jesus still. That's good news because it means he certainly had a front row seat to Jesus and his ministry. There's perhaps no greater witness. If you wanted to know of the life, the nature of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the implication of all of these things, there is perhaps no one that you could summon back who would be better prepared and equipped to tell you those things than John. Again, what we have here is truly a gift. Two more things in the way of background. It's also helpful, as as I think will become increasingly clear when we work through John, to have a decent sense of when John was written. There is some some debate, for sure, um, but most scholars who hold to inerrancy, who hold this to be the Word of God, believe that John's Gospel is written somewhere between 80 and 95 A.D., This is especially important if this is the case, because it was written after the destruction of the temple and even after the martyrdom of Peter, among other things. And again, along the way, I'll I'll help you to see why that matters. Finally, in the way of background, it will help us to make sense of what we have, polarized glasses, when we go through John, if we know who he had in mind primarily when he wrote his gospel. Without getting too too far ahead of myself, or getting too far ahead of ourselves, from John's stated purpose, which we'll see in John chapter 20, as well as the focus, language, and perspective within the gospel, it seems that John primarily had in mind a skeptical Jewish, skeptical of Jesus, Jewish audience. This too you'll see, and you'll see the importance of throughout John. If that's the way, in the way of Background. I want to say a little bit more about John's relationship to the other Gospels. As you all know, John isn't the only Gospel. There's four. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar. They follow a common chronology and have most of the same stories in common. For that reason, we often refer to them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means able to be seen together. The fourth gospel, John, is different. Even a casual reader, even even kids, if you read a few chapters in, in Matthew, for instance, or especially Luke, if you pick up Luke this afternoon and, and read just a few chapters, and then pick up John and read a few chapters of it, almost immediately you'll notice that there's something different. The more I read over the past two weeks on the background of John, the more I became convinced. I need to say at least a couple of words about the difference, the relationship between John's gospel and the other three. 
In particular, there's four things quickly I want to highlight for you. First, there is significant differences and even apparent contradictions. I remember in first coming to faith in Christ, talking to some of my family about what that meant and how I now understood Jesus differently and the Word of God differently. And some of my family responded by saying, I don't understand how you can can do that. I don't understand. There, the Bible even contradicts itself in places. And, and some of what they had in mind or what they tried to show me is in the relationship between John and the other Gospels. There are no, there are no story parables in John, for instance, whereas those are really important in the other Gospels. John is missing any account of the transfiguration He's missing an account of ex- the exorcism that exorcisms that show up in the other Gospels and even the institution of the Lord's Supper. What's more, in John's Gospel, John the Baptist denies being Elijah while Jesus teaches that he is in Mark. In John, the disciples almost immediately call on Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God. Or, I'm sorry, in John, they almost immediately do that. While it isn't until much later, after a lot of fumbling and bumbling in the other three. In John, Jesus cleanses the temple, temple right at the beginning of the gospel. Well, that isn't recorded in the synoptics until the very end. There are three Passovers mentioned in John and only one in the others. Even the time of Jesus' crucifixion seems to be different, according to John, than the rest of the writers. The simple point I'm trying to make here is that it is good to pay attention to these things as we move through John, for reasons I'll explain in just a little bit. The second thing to note concerning John's relationship is, even though that's the case, uh, that <clears throat> there are things missing in John that are in the others, and even things that seem contradictory, There are also uh, some remarkably helpful details in John that fill out and help unpack the other Gospels. For instance, John reports much more of Jesus' ministry in the South than the other three do. Uh, Why does that matter? Well, when when we get there, we'll see how truly helpful this is in making sense of the things that we read in the synoptics concerning Jesus' ministry in the north. There are things that if you just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke about what happens up north, you think, I, I don't understand that. That seems, that seems strange to me. Likewise, John helps us understand the charges against Jesus concerning his promise to destroy the temple. They just happen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The, the charges are just there, whereas we read in John what he actually said where those charges were brought to him. And although John records no exorcisms, he explains more about the devil and his demons than the other three Gospels do. So we have a a sense of what's going on in the spiritual realm and the evil so that the demons are possessing these different things that Jesus drives out later. Again, the simple point is that John fills in and explains a number of things that are hard to make sense of if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Third, very briefly, there is a lot of discussion among pastors and theologians about whether John had read the other three Gospels or not, whether he had been exposed to any or all of them. There's a lot of discussion, but no agreed upon 
conclusions. Many of the arguments, if you read them on both sides, make a good deal of sense and seem at least to have some merit. The main reason this matters is in relation to the first two points. If John had read any of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it would almost certainly prove that any apparent contradictions were just that, apparent. And the manner in which John fills out some of the other gospel accounts would be, be intentional, and it would demonstrate those things. But if John didn't have access to the other Gospels, we'd need to look somewhere else to explain those things, which many have done convincingly, and I I hope to do for you throughout the Gospel. But the consistency we find then, in the end, if he had no access to them, but tells a truly consistent story, a a complementary story, it points even more to to the divine origin of all four. In other words, knowing definitively whether or not John had access to the other Gospels might be interesting, but it isn't necessary for us. Lastly, there are notable differences between all of the Gospels, and especially between Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this one. Combined, however, and hear this grace, the four Gospels tell a unified story of the life, ministry, teaching, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Combined, they tell a fuller and richer version of the story than any would on their own. Combined, they create a sense of awe and wonder that is more colorful and textured than if any were missing. In other words, Grace, as we make our way through John, I'll I'll highlight for you some of what the other gospel writers say for a particular purpose. By God's design, we get the fullest and most sufficient picture of Jesus' life on earth, not through any one or two or three of the Gospels, but through and only through the combination of all four. For God's glory and and our good, we'll see this more and more in the coming weeks and months. All right. Having briefly considered the background and relationship to the other three Gospels, it's good to have a sense of the structure of John's gospel. How, how is it made up? What, what form does it take? Two things I think you need to know. First, while there are many more subdivisions that could be made, it seems plain that the gospel of John is, has four main sections. This is good to write down. If you have your notes, it's on there. There is an introduction, just half of the first chapter, one, verses 1 through 18. A long description of the ministry of Jesus on earth, which is the second half of chapter one, all the way through chapter 12. Sometimes if you, if you read any books about John's gospel or maybe in your study Bible, you'll see that it's sometimes called the book of signs, second half of chapter one, all the way through chapter 12. And then an account of the Passion Week, probably even only the last couple of days of the Passion Week in chapter 13, all the way through 20. And that's sometimes called the Book of Glory. And it concludes then with a short uh, epilogue in chapter 21. That's it. Four parts. The very beginning of chapter 1 and uh, chapter 21 is the intro and conclusion. And then two more major sections. Jesus' ministry on earth in the last few days of his life. In the introduction, John makes some startling claims. I'm going to read a bit of it this morning in just a bit. But he makes some startling claims about Jesus. Claims that would have jarred any first century reader and ought to jar any careful reader today. 
He makes startling claims in the introduction. And then in the section on Jesus' ministry, the second section in the gospel, John organized his stories to best verify the shocking claims he made in the introduction. So he's going to drop some stuff on us right away in the first 18 verses. And then in the next chapter, he organizes the things he tells us about Jesus to help best defend and verify the claims he made early on. That's pretty awesome. In John's account to the final week of Jesus' life, everything comes to a head. And John's point there is to help us to see Jesus fully and finally proving himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, and Jesus' teaching, his prayers, his death, and in his resurrection. And then finally in the epilogue, Jesus presented himself to his fathers and his followers in his glorified body to commission them again, and especially Peter. All right, that's all the first thing I want you to see about the structure. Four parts. The second thing that we ought to have a firm grasp on concerning how John organized his gospel is the fact that John was least concerned among all the gospel writers for chronology. That's going to become plain pretty quick. All right, He's least concerned with telling things in exactly the order in which they happened. For the most part, this was tied to why he wrote, to his unique purpose in writing his gospel. Again, I'll, I'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. Let me, let me explain this just a little bit more, though. So for Luke, for instance, who was mainly interested in faithfully recording the facts of Jesus' life, Luke's goal was to give us the most historically accurate account of the events of Jesus' life possible. So for someone like him, chronology, telling it in the proper order, was absolutely critical. But that's not John's main aim. For John, who was mainly interested in demonstrating, as we'll see, that Jesus was the Christ, that's his main goal, is proving that Jesus is the Christ. For someone like him, with that as his main aim, chronology wasn't nearly as important as describing the events of Jesus' life and ministry that most clearly demonstrate the Christness of Jesus, or that Jesus was the Christ. So the structure is relatively simple, but there's unimaginable glory within it. Keeping in mind which of the four sections that we're in will go a long way to helping you truly understand and apply the truths of John's gospel. Again, I'll try to regularly remind you where we are within that as we move through it. All right. The distinctiveness. John's gospel is distinct, as I already mentioned, from the other gospels and even from the rest of the Bible in certain ways. And I want to help you to see why. John focuses on Jesus' ministry in the south in a way that the other gospels focus mostly on the north. That's one way. That plays, that plays a role. Why, why does John sound so different? Why does it feel so different when you read it? Part of it is the geography. So too does John's extended use of speeches. Do you remember we, we spent time in Mark many years ago? What's the thing you see, or what's the thing you hear most in Mark? And immediately, and immediately. And it was just this rapid fire, one thing to the next, really quickly. 
Whereas John has these long discourses, longer than any of the other Gospels, longer than any other part in the New Testament, these long speeches that are given. That has something to do with it as well, as well as his emphasis on signs and wonders, lots of contrasts in John between good and evil and light and dark. That that makes gives it a little bit different of a feel as well. It, it makes it distinct. So too does his very distinctly Jewish focus, and his different style of language, the different style of Greek that he wrote in. Above all of these, however, two of the most distinct aspects of John's Gospel are how theological it is and how Christological it is. And I'll tell you what I mean by both. Theological first. Of course, the entire Bible is filled with theological insights including the Synoptic Gospels. Certain books of the Bible, however, are especially theological in content, and John's Gospel is one of them. To give you a taste of what I mean, please listen carefully to some of the introduction. I'm going to read a little bit of the beginning of John's Gospel and the tremendous amount of theology it contains. Now, by that, what what I mean is it doesn't just tell us facts about Jesus, but interprets those facts for us. It doesn't just describe events that happened, but tells us what's underneath and in and through those events. Just listen to this. Again, very different than the rest of the Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not a thing, not anything that was made was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, skipping ahead just a little bit, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping ahead a little bit again. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, that that just has an entirely different flavor and an entirely different feel than what we might read elsewhere. In these few verses alone, we find significant and explicit teaching, theology, on creation and sin and salvation and the nature of the Father and the Son and the relationship between them. And throughout the rest of John's Gospel, we find even more We're given even more on all three persons of the Trinity and the relationship between them. We're given remarkable clarity on how God views prayer and what happens when we pray, the the nature of prayer and how to pray, including the greatest example of prayer in the entire Bible in chapter 17. In addition, John gives us much concerning the theology of miracles and regeneration and the devil, as I mentioned earlier, and discipleship and the very purpose for which Jesus came to earth to die. Again, John's gospel is remarkably theological. 
certainly far more than the other three Gospels. And above all, it focuses on one aspect of theology, namely the very nature of Jesus as the Christ. That's the second distinction I want to highlight for you, is that it's Christological. Now that might sound strange that John, to say that John is distinct in having a Christological focus, when the whole point of all four Gospels is Christ. But by theological, though, I don't simply mean that John's aim is to talk about Jesus or to communicate information about Jesus. I mean that his aim, which we'll see even more clearly in the next and final section, is to explain and prove who Jesus is. And within that burden, John's gospel is distinct in two main ways. And it's Christological focus. One, that Jesus is God, and two, the specific nature of Jesus as God. What do do those two things mean? More than any other gospel, indeed probably more than any other book of the Bible, John makes it crystal clear that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. Right away, we just read it, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learn from verse 14 in chapter 1 that Jesus is that Word. Jesus is God. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. Well, what do we know about creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.23, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness to do what? Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'll tell you about that in a second. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 20.28, 20, Thomas answered him, You are Jesus, my Lord and my God. Some of the verses I just read are clearer than others concerning Jesus' divine nature, but collectively, along with the others in John, they make a remarkable case, certainly a very clear claim that Jesus is divine. John's gospel is distinct in its focus on the fact that Jesus is God. So what does that mean? Under that banner, John tells us secondly, in a really distinct way, what that means through a series of I am statements. As we just heard in John 8, 58, Jesus assumed for himself the most holy name of God, first revealed to Moses by God himself back in Exodus 3. Moses said to God, God had just commissioned him, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Again then, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, before Abraham was, I am, he was clearly claiming this title for himself. As remarkable as that is, John made sure to go a step further still. In his gospel, he carefully demonstrates or carefully records 
seven specific I am statements of Jesus, seven aspects of what it means that Jesus is God. I can't wait to get to these in the text, but John is distinct in giving us these things. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. What an awesome gift this is for us as the people of God. Grace, as we move through the gospel, let's keep in mind that John is not just presenting Jesus, or he's not presenting Jesus merely as an interesting person to be considered and admired. He's not even merely presenting Jesus as a savior to be trusted in. It is though. He is all that, but it's not merely that. He is presenting Jesus as a God to be worshipped, as God to be worshipped and obeyed. To sit through John, to hear it, to understand it, to receive it with your polarized glasses on, you cannot sit through it with indifference. You cannot even merely sit through it with interest or intrigue. To sit through John with a genuine understanding of what John is claiming, and certainly to agree with John's claims or to receive John's claims in faith, is truly an invitation, Grace, to take your every care, your every concern, your every treasure, your every possession, your every relationship, your every accomplishment and failure and hurt and sickness and hope to Jesus and hear his words. What is that to you? You follow me. John gives us a Jesus who is more than able to receive all of those things and completely overshadow all of them with an infinite and eternal glory. So finally then, and most briefly of all, because this is what the rest of our time in John will be, everything we've covered so far leads us to the very purpose for which John gave us his gospel, for which God inspired him to write it. Beyond the date and authorship of John's gospel, beyond its background, beyond its relationship to the other three gospels, beyond its structure, and even beyond its distinctiveness, is John's aim in writing what he wrote. The main thrust of John's first letter, 1 John, you know 1 John? 1 John, he tells us in it that his main aim is that his readers might know that they have genuine faith in Jesus, that they might know that they have eternal life, that they might know that they're truly believing in Jesus. So his aim in his first letter is that his readers might know that their faith is real. But that begs the question, faith in who? Faith in what? How much faith? What's the content of the faith? Who is this Jesus? What exactly do we need to know about him and believe about him and why? That's where John's gospel comes in. It was written, John tells us in chapter 20, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we just saw, John is not interested in merely conveying facts or information about Jesus. His main aim was to help his readers understand and accept the shocking fact that Jesus is the Christ that God long promised to send in order that all who receive this good news would believe upon him and have life forever. 
So again, John wrote that his readers might believe. That they might believe what? That Jesus is the Christ that God promised to send. Send for what purpose? That through him, those who would receive him in faith might have life in his name. In the end then, and in conclusion, that's my hope for all of us as well. As we make our way through the fourth gospel, that every one of us would become convinced or increasingly convinced or refreshed in our having been convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and through that, that we would find and find confidence in the everlasting life and love and redemption of God in Jesus.